Hello, YouTube theologians. Welcome to the Q&A podcast. I'm Pastor Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas, joined by Pastor Andrew Packer of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois. Pastor Packer, I heard a rumor about you. I don't know if it's true oh. or not, but that you resolved this year amongst all your New Year's resolutions that you resolved to try the uh, different color eye contacts including the cat the yellow cat eye contacts is that is that a true resolution did you resolve to i did not um i thought you had resolved to quit doing these <laughs> no no that also is false. <laughs> no that was false too we both are hearing rumors oh, that's right all right what do you got for us today um this first one i thought was pretty good someone uh says luther explains the lord's prayer for petition in this way daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support in needs of the body, such as food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or wife, devout children, devout workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. Why does God so often fail to answer positively the prayer he himself commanded his people to pray? I speak from my own life experience. Well, so that's so. First of all, thank you for the question. I'm sorry that things are hard. It, um, in fact, it is the mark of everyone in this life that we, there is suffering, and I don't think what the fourth petition is, what what Luther's explanation is getting at, is that there will be no suffering in this life. I don't. In fact, I, I think it's more like we, we think of. If you like, what's the baseline life like? We sort of think, well, there's there's land and animals and home and and food and drink and house and clothing and this that's sort of normal. And then people are, you could be below that line or above that line, but there's sort of a normal line for normal life. And I think what Luther is getting at, first of all, is that if it were not for the Lord, there would be none of these things. There would be no family. There'd be no children. There'd be no life. There'd be no farms there'd be no food there'd be nothing to drink there'd be no clean water there'd be there'd be no good it would all would be war and famine and poverty in fact luther says in the large catechism explanation of the lord's prayer which by the way i i did a book about remember that i, <laughs> I forgot that I, I just published a book i just made that available on amazon last week i should have thought i should have said to you hey ask a question about luther's explanation of the lord's prayer and then i could plug the book but I just now remembered. Anyhow, in the large catechism, Luther says that the de if it were up to the devil, we wouldn't have a crumb of bread to eat in peace. So baseline is hunting around for a crumb of bread to lick off the floor. And anything above that is a gift of God. And so I think that, and it, and it's, it is quite amazing that we, so, so we normally think that spiritual warfare is spiritual like we're doing, it is it, it is always with the demons and the and the devil, and so it is against the spirits. But it is also very physical that the devil, if he had his way, would take away everything from us, so that everything that we have. If you had a, a little water to drink today, and when you woke up, and a and a piece of crumb, you know, some cr crumbs of bread, that that is above what the devil wants you to have. That even the meagerest existence is much more than what the devil wants. So all of this is is the Lord giving it to us, but so it, we don't always have all these things until the resurrection. So our lack of the things that we want 
Like maybe, you know, Luther says, what, land and animals? Well, maybe you don't have any land or the land that you have is very, very small. Uh, like I always tell the kids in cat confirmation class, if you went to McDonald's and you bought a hamburger, then that wheat, you had a very, very little piece of land for a very, very little while that went into that <laughs> bun. And the animals that you have is you have about on this sandwich, like one one thousandth of a cow. <laughs> and he's, you know, he's cooked. So you do have a little land and a little animals, but in, in the form of wheat and, and meat. Anyhow, you might have very, very little of these things. You might not have a spouse. You might not have children. And I think that's probably the lament that this comes from. No health, no, no, no marriage, no family. Uh, and this is possible in this fallen world that our desires are not always that our desires are not always met with reality, which is one of the reasons why we pray. Remembering that, and I don't, that, that every prayer starts as an unanswered prayer. I mean, when we pray, give us a stay our daily bread. In fact, we are admitting that we need God to help us to have that. Otherwise, we wouldn't. So, I don't know. There's just a kind of few meandering thoughts on the question. You got, what do you think? Yeah, I think also in large catechism, he talks about how, um, like the wars and fires and all these other things would just ravage the land if it wasn't for the prayers of God's faithful people. And in Psalm 118, uh, a little bit different angle on this, he talks about how we have so many thousands of blessings every day from the Lord that we were kind of blind to. He, he says, we're like, we have blinders on. We can't see the blessings all around us. So we don't thank God for them. And he gives the example of like, if a rich man didn't have clean air to breathe or if he didn't have clean water to drink, that he would change, he would trade his riches just for those things. Mm. Or if he never saw the sun, uh, if he never had sunshine, he would trade his riches for those things. And Luther says, we have those things in abundance every day, and we, we just take them for granted. We don't see them as the blessings they are. So, so I think it's, like you said, it's kind of, the baseline is kind of we should what we deserve and what it should be is like death and ruin and destruction. But instead, God is constantly blessing us and sometimes in ways that are just we take for granted because they seem insignificant, like the, the fact that we're upright and, and breathing and having sunshine and having I can go to my kitchen and get water very easily without any trouble. Luther says we, we despise all those gifts. And so we don't really see all the blessings we're constantly being given so that even the list he gives us right, is a partial list in, in that fourth petition. He's blessing us way beyond that every day, but we often don't see it. And so, yeah, sometimes we don't have those things because of sin and, and the the assaults of the devil and the world and even our own sinful flesh cause us to lack those things. And yet God is still blessing us in thousands of ways each and every day. Did, was this controversy when you were at seminary? It was when I was there. That is Luther, or should the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread, be understood about the Lord's Supper? Did you guys fight about that? <laughs> Um, yeah, I know it came up and, and I know it was, um, talked about, I mean, I don't have problem like making an application to the Lord's supper, but, it, um, <laughs> it, it does, I mean, our, both the, the small and large cag does make it pretty clear that it's, it's not merely about like the application isn't only to that, that it does actually apply to the things we need day in and day out, but I'm sure it's still being debated. I just don't I think care anymore. Is, I thought this was an important, <laughs> an important fight because there's a way that we can think that God cares for us 
um, spiritually, but not physically, like not in our sort of real life stuff. God is just sort of in the imaginary realm of the heart and the spirit, but not in the realm of the kitchen, you know, or the or whatever the field. And we have to. I think we have to push back about the against this. That I was. I wrote this yesterday, uh, which I think has to do with this. So maybe this is on my mind. So I want to push it. So when you listen to the reform guys, they're always talking about God's sovereignty. Of course, we have that. But I was trying to figure out what the what the Lutheran language equivalent is because we don't you hardly ever hear a Lutheran speak of God's sovereignty. Not that we can't, but you hardly ever hear about it. And I think the language is God's governance. The the Lutherans talk about how God governs the world and governs all things, and and that is an important. It's not just that he he governs the world according to his will, and so that the things that are happening in our lives are according to his his good pleasure, his, his governance, his rule, which is fighting against the devil's uh, rule in this things. And so, so that God is involved in the things he's involved in the crops coming out of the ground. He's involved in the, in the shipping lanes being disputed and undisputed and all this, he's involved in all these things. This is all part of his own governance. And when we pray, give us this day, our daily bread, that's what we're in fact confessing is that the Lord has something, in fact, everything to do with all of these things. I think part of that debate, right, if I remember correctly, was the argument was made, well, God gives us all those things, so we don't need to pray for them. And so obviously you're praying for the Lord's Supper, although couldn't the argument be made that he gives us the Lord's Supper too? And so, <laughs> right, I mean, that's right. anyway, that's I, I, I don't know how that works. But it, I do think with that point, though, it misses Luther's point, which is what you just said. We, we, pray, in this, we pray this in this petition. Why? So we learn to receive them with thanksgiving. So that we wouldn't just think like the Lord warns in Deuteronomy 8, oh, look at what I've accomplished with the work of my hands, you know, and forget to give thanks to the Lord for all the many benefits he bestows on us day in and day out. That that prayer reorients us each and every day to see everything we have in this life, both temporal and spiritual and eternal, as from the Lord, not something we've done with our own hands. Yep. Yep. That's right. So that all the things that we do have, we receive with thankfulness from the Lord. And all the things we don't have, we pray that he would in mercy give them to us. That's yeah, exactly. Good. Go. All right, let's look at the next one. Um, dear Pastor Wolfmiller, I get so much out of listening to you on KFUO along with watching your videos. Right now I'm facing a possible breast cancer diagnosis. So appreciate it if you can clarify what it means to number our days. I know God alone knows how many days each of us will live on this earth. So I'm unclear if number our days means to live always in a God-pleasing manner. This is how I thought of it when reading the verse surrounding the verse, just to number our days, but not sure if I clearly understand it. Sorry that I don't recall the specific Bible verse, but I'm fearful of my future, though I'm a lifelong Luther with faith and knowing God is with me. Yeah, wow. Well, good question. Really, really good questions. Um, number our days. That's Psalm 90, isn't it? And Correct. I think yeah. it's interesting that, so a, cu a couple of things. The There's a stoic practice of numbering your days, but it's the exact opposite, as far as I can tell, of the Christian practice. So the, there, you, you can find some sort of stoic app, and it's like a countdown timer 
and you, they, they you type in like whatever it is and it tells you you you're probably going to live this many more days <laughs> it says <laughs> you've got a thousand days left and then the next day 999 998 and your whole life becomes a a countdown timer <laughs> to when your probable death will be well okay so first of all that's wrong because you don't know I mean, you, you, we, today could be our last day, or tomorrow. The Lord could return before we're done with this Q&A, which would be great. Uh, so, so we don't know when we're going to be. So it's, it's, the numbering of our days is not a counting down in the stoic sort of morbid way, but a counting up. And it's a recognition that each day is a gift and a treasure t- that the Lord gives to us. So we're gathering up days. At the end of the day, uh, we we thank the Lord that He's given us another one. At the end of the year, we just passed over the new year. We thank the Lord for another, the year two thousand and twenty-three, the year of our Lord. And we're now in a new year. We thank the Lord for that. So He He keeps giving us more days, and and so to to, to number our days is I think to number one recognize that we are mortal, that our days are numbered, that they're they're that you'll be able to count how long you live. And and we do this in church. You do this too when you announce the death of someone so-and-so. Died in the Lord's name. The Lord in his good... It, it, in fact, the, the, here's the official announcement. It has pleased Almighty God in his good pleasure to call uh, from this veil of tears, to be with himself in heaven, the soul of our beloved sister, who departed this life yesterday, uh, having attained the age of 90 years and four months and 16 days. Uh, the funeral arrangements will be so-and-so. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed, and the whole congregation says, blessed be the name of the Lord. So we actually number people's days. It's one of the things that I do when I go to visit the family of some person who died. I said, okay, birthday, and I'll do the calculations, and I'll tell them the Lord gave them 74 years and two months and 19 and 18 or 17 days. And so you're numbering the days and treasuring each one of them. We also, though, know that we're mortal and we're dying, and so we face the facts. Every person is dying. It's like I remember during COVID, they're like, hey, mortality rate is 3% or 0.00007% or whatever it was. Who knows? I said, you know, the mortality rate is actually 100%. We all are going to die. And it's an amazing thing that we don't think about it. Like I've, I've got to do, there's a lot of things I have to do. And one of them is I'm going to have to die. So we should probably imagine that a little bit and think about it. And, uh, and so we have a certain number of days and that makes us both rejoice in the Lord and also, I think, not squander them. So there's a heart of wisdom. That, that's what it says. Teach us the number of days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So that part of the wisdom of our heart is knowing that this life at one, one time will end. That time is not an unlimited resource until the resurrection. And that we're living accordingly. Uh, we're asking the Lord to bless the work of our hands. That's also Psalm 90. Psalm 90, by the way, is the psalm, only psalm we have from Moses, making it the oldest psalm. Uh, also, and the beginning of book four of the Psalms. So it probably was brought to, into the collection by Asher, who was compiling this edition of the book of the Psalter. And so that's an amazing thing. And in it, it contrasts the Lord's eternality with our temporality. A day is like a thousand years. And so even the oldest person, Melchizedek, never made it to a thousand. And yet for the Lord, that's like a day. So we, we recognize also in our mortality, our finiteness. And that's part, part of the heart of wisdom. I would talk over you. I want to come back to the fear of death in just a minute, but just thoughts on numbering our days from you, Pastor Pack. Yeah, I'm glad you added the second part of that verse that we may gain a heart of wisdom, right? Because the the part isn't to have some kind of morbid countdown. I didn't know that was a thing. So thanks for 
Thanks for letting me know there's an app that will count down your days for you. That's kind of amazing. Uh, but that we may learn to, to live in faith. On my phone. And I and then I realized that it was anti-Psalm 90. It was the, I was doing the opposite. of I, We're not supposed to be counting down. We're supposed to be counting up. So... Well, and part of it, right, to gain a heart of wisdom means that like, we don't, because we don't know how many days we have, each day is a gift. We're learning to live by faith. So we have to entrust, as the great hymn says, entrust your days and burdens, right, to God's most loving care. Like we, we have to entrust all that we are and all that we do to his hands, knowing that he knows the number and that's in his hands. And so we live each day by faith, trusting in his promises, not knowing when our end's going to come, but knowing that he's got it all under control. It's also why at the end of this psalm, uh, I, it's a prayer I pray a lot, um, and I think it ties all of that together, is let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands, yea, establish the work of our hands. So right, we're praying for God to bless what we're doing here as we live in faith because we don't know we don't know how long any of it's going to last. And so we can entrust all of these things to him and trust that he will put his blessing upon it. It's the same thing Luther says in Psalm 127 that we work as hard as we can as if it all depends on us. And at the end of the day, we put it in God's hands and say, Lord, bless this. Bless this work I've done. Do with it what you will. How you choose to bless it is fine. I've, it's, it's all in your hands. And so when we realize that our entire life is based upon God and his word and his promises, then rather than, like you said, counting down, we're just free to live. We're free to live in faith and to do what God has called us to do without worry and fear about when the end is coming because we're, we know who's got that in its hands. Right. And that has to do with the, this. So the email talked about being afraid of what, of the future. And I think that means being afraid of dying and also means being a, also afraid of like the on-ramp to death. I, and when I talk to people, I'm like, Hey, you are not supposed to be afraid of dying. And people say, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm just afraid of everything that happens like right before yep. dying. Well, I, in a way, you're that's right. You're supposed to be because the Lord wants you to avoid it. If you weren't afraid of pain, then we'd probably all be dead already because we would just kind of plunge in carelessly into things, and we wouldn't live a life that's trying to avoid trying to avoid all these bad things happening. But, um, but the but the Lord does want us to be free first of all from the fear of death. The the two verses I think are most helpful for this is Hebrews two where it talks about how the Lord Jesus took upon himself flesh and blood like we have so that through his death, he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil and set us all free who were our, our whole lives held captive to the fear of death. So that to recognize that the fear of death is a kind, it is a captivity, a demonic captivity. Okay. The reason why is because the devil can use our dying as a, coercive measure to get us to do what he wants to do in disobedience to God by the threat of death. And if we're not afraid to die, then the, think of the martyrs. Hey, renounce Christ or die. And they'd say, well, I'll die. So they couldn't be coerced. The other key passage is the end of 1 Corinthians 15. I think it's so key is that this is the resurrection chapter where, where the Lord is talking about how he, the Lord will, he's the first fruits, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and he will give that resurrection glory to us, we will also be raised from the dead. And that resurrection of us from the dead is as certain as the, the resurrection of Jesus. And we look forward to that as our hope, which means that for us to die is not the end. In fact, it's, it's more like the beginning. And, beca be, and because of that, 
because we pass through death to life and the resurrection is to come, the, the death is something that we're longing for because we're longing for the resurrection. And he says, but the problem is we know that to, to, to die is to be judged, but that the Lord is, because the Lord Jesus has taken upon himself all of our sins and forgiven our sins, that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so that the strength of sin and the law has been broken so that there is no sting in death anymore. That the Lord has taken death, which is the original enemy. If you eat it, you'll die. He's taken death, and he has himself transformed it into a, a gift. The Christian has a strange relationship with death because in one way, we, we know, we're set by the fifth commandment to fight against death all the time. You shall not murder, which means we are pro-life, and we're fighting for life in every way. We're, and we're fighting for our own lives, especially for the lives of people around us. So if you think of... Like you're in a house and, and death is trying to break in through the window and you close the window and trying to get into the back door. You lock the door. You're patrolling the house. You set the alarm. You're not going to let him break in until he knocks on the front door and then you welcome him in like a friend. <laughs> because then when death, when it's time for death to come, then God be praised. This is to live as Christ, to die as gain. And that's true for you and for me and for all for our listeners. For, because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, our Death is really for us. It really is a gain. It is an improvement of the situation. It gets better. It is an escape. It is a being. Death is the way that the Lord takes us out of death. Death is the way that the Lord ends our dying. Death is the way that the Lord answers our prayer, deliver us from evil. And so it, when at last it comes to us, it comes as a gift. Um, People think of death as the end, and I think this is a problem because people say, well, there's just so many things that I want to do before I die. Okay. You're not going to get to do everything you want to do. That's just, can we just kind of all, like, kind of man up to that fact, or woman up, I suppose, to that fact that we're not all going to, we're not going to get, you are not going to get to do everything that you want to do in your life. That, for gentlemen, that's going to be very helpful when it comes to the midlife crisis time <laughs> because... Let's just get it, get it over with. You're not gonna, you're, there's going to be something you regret because you're a sinner and you live in a fallen world. Okay. You're not going to get everything you want. Okay. But death comes to us now as a promise from God. Not as an end, but as the beginning of eternal life. And so we long for that in that way. And so we can pray that the Lord would help us to face our own death, our own mortality, our own dying, our own suffering, that we would face it with with the confidence that comes from his word and spirit. Now, now it's easy for me to say that because I'm here and healthy and I don't have any cancers kind of eating away at me and all this sort of stuff. But it's good to think about it now before it happens, I suppose, because then you know what to, ha what to do when it, when it comes along. But uh, for, our, for the questioner, God, God's peace be with you. Th I mean, thank you for your question. This is very, very hard. But the Lord is with you, and he will uphold you. And he hears you. He loves to hear your prayers over and over again. He doesn't get tired of hearing them. So uh, so be of good cheer. The, the, Lord, the Lord of life is your Lord. Amen. I'm not going to anything to that. Uh, do you want one more question? Are you, yeah, are you yeah, good for today? Another. What do you want? One more. Okay. Uh, this is, let's see. There's an important truth I haven't been able to articulate, and I'm wondering if there are places it's been expressed in Lutheranism. And that's, this is what they're trying to articulate. The gospel is for living and also abiding in for our sanctification. 
is this right? I'm basing this on Peter and Galatians being rebuked by Paul for not walking in step with the gospel. Thank you. Hmm. So this this I, this is going to be close, and it might get us. Just just the first thought that occurs to me, so it might get us a little closer. There's a the accusation was brought to the Lutherans early on that they forbid good works, that they were antinomian, and the response that the Lutherans gave is not only do we not forbid good works, we require good works, and we teach how they're supposed to be done, which is through the strength of the gospel. So the law provides the contours of good works, the description of good works, the boundaries of good works, but the gospel provides, sorry, the law provides that, but the gospel provides the energy, the strength of the good, of the doing of good works. And so, uh, and so the gospel is there as the not the motivator, but as the force uh, behind our behind our Christian life, and so that's that's at least the way that they began to talk about this. But the the question is asking something a little bit different, like because when Paul is rebuking Peter to walk according to the gospel, what he, what he's saying is that he remember he went to the he was up in in um, Antioch and he was living in the freedom of the gospel. He was eating not kosher. And then a bunch of people came to visit from Jerusalem, and then he said, "Oh no, I can't eat the lobster anymore, or whatever." And so he was his hypocrisy was there, is that he switched over to a kind of a legalism, uh, which was a denial of the gospel, a denial of the freedom which is in Christ, and and so that was he was not walking according to the gospel. He was not walking in the freedom that, that God gives us. Let no one. Uh, this is the kind of theme of Galatians. No, no one can rob you of the freedom that you have in Christ. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a, also a strong theme in Lutheranism. I don't know. What comes to your mind? No, uh, that's My first thought was that the way he's talking about walking in the gospel uh, is exactly what you said, right? It's he, He's denying the gospel by adding works that these Gentiles would need to fulfill to eat with him, right? So, in a sense, he's he's denying his public confession of the gospel. The gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, because by eating in that way, he's adding extra steps. Well, you can't eat with us unless you have, right, unless you're circumcised, unless you have this, unless you add all these other things, then you're pure enough to come eat with us. So I think you're exactly right. That's In that context, that's what he's talking about is by Peter doing those things, he's denying the gospel he's preaching, uh, which is a good warning, I think, for for all of us pastors, right? With in our preaching and teaching, not to not to add to, to the requirements of God's word for someone to be saved, lest we also deny the gospel ourselves. And then what you're talking about in the beginning, Paul seems to use the word for that, not so much walking the gospel, but later in Galatians, right? He'll talk about walking in the spirit for, for the Christian life. Um, so we don't really talk about, I don't know. It's, the phrase walking the gospel uh, the way he's trying to use it, I think, is more what Paul means by walking the Spirit. I was thinking about that as, as I heard you explain that. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, that sounds good. So there is these these two impulses, these two these. Hmm. There's there's the 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 flesh and the spirit are the two things that are battling in the Christian. Now, before you're a Christian, it's just the flesh, and the flesh has its own desires, its own decisions, its own thought patterns, its own. It's a, it's a, it's a, 
it, it is who you are. But when you become a Christian now, the spirit is warring against the flesh. So the flesh keeps its old desires, its old thought patterns, its old whatever. But now there's the spirit with new desires. But it's not, the, the Bible never uses the word desire for the spirit. It's interesting that it could. There's a number of times that they come in parallel and you would expect the spirit desires, but it doesn't say the spirit desire the spirit. So the, the the flesh is more of a stomach and the spirit is more of a mind. That, that that's an imperfect analogy, but they they're they work in different ways. So the the flesh is still lusting and plotting, but the spirit is warring against it to do what God desires to do. And our whole lives are these two things. And so what you said when Paul will say, walk according to the spirit, those who walk according to the spirit do not obey the lusts of the flesh. Or how does this, the beginning of Romans 8 is, is really quite astonishing when the way that Paul talks there. He says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we're walking not according to the flesh. We're walking according to the Spirit, like you said. And then this verse, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So the Spirit and the flesh have different laws, and the law of the flesh is sin and death. That's where it goes. But the law of the Spirit is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus which is not only the forgiveness of sins, it is and chiefly is the forgiveness of sins, but it is then everything that flows from the forgiveness of sins, which is the fearlessness to face death and the patience and suffering and trust in God when, we're, when it's time to die and to the spirit of prayer that Paul talks about so that we trust that the Lord is the one who provides for us in all these things. So so that's a there's this contrasting law in the spirit of the of the the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is, is what's at work in us, constantly at work in us. Yeah, and the end of Galatians, right, that's where Paul says that what the Spirit's producing is the fruit of the Spirit. And then he, he gives, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, etc. Gives this list of for us. And it's interesting, too, because he doesn't list, like, right, a, thing, a set of things that uh, you do, per se, but there are characteristics that the Spirit's working in you, um, these gifts the Spirit's working in you, that will show forth in your works. It's not that they're divorced from the works, but it's because the Spirit has is changing you, right, and, and causing these things to to be there in you. And then those things show themselves in, in how you live out your vocations and love and serve the neighbor. Yeah, that's right. That's good. So did we get there? So the question was, how does that idea express itself in Lutheran kind of terminology? I think, well, so first of all, don't be too worried about Lutheran terminology, although I really appreciate the question. It's like, how did the, how did the confessors of the faith speak of these things? I, I do like that question, but we have the biblical vocabulary, and that's always going to be fine. We can, we can just use the biblical language, and it'll be fine. Uh, but I think their big term for this is sanctification, and understanding the sanctification comes in two kind of there's a sanctification in the big picture and the large view and the narrow view the narrow view of sanctification is the works of love uh that follow faith uh hating our own sin and loving god and the neighbor that's the sanctification in the narrow sense sanctification in the broad sense is everything that the holy spirit does to make us holy including showing us our sin by the law giving us faith in the gospel increasing changing our hearts so that we desire to chase after him according to the word in our own and the new man that's given to us so 
so um, sanctification is the is the language that they use to, to capture this idea, and um, and that sanctification is also a is is a is an orthodox confession. So that anything that we would say that would contradict the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, or anything that we would do that would contradict the orthodoxy of the law and gospel and the forgiveness of sins, that would be not walking in step with the gospel. Yeah, that sounds perfect. Good way well, to end. Hey, thanks for listening to this Q&A. Happy New Year to all of you. Pastor. Happy, I think we figured this out today. Tenth day of Christmas. Uh, God be praised that we continue to celebrate that. And thanks for the questions. Keep sending your questions in. Uh, something broke on the website, I think, that I don't know how to fix. But I, I, I'm sure I will by next time we record that we'll get your questions to Pastor Packer. So keep sending them in. Uh, and if we didn't get to it, you can send it in again. That'll be great. Uh, and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you guys down the, down the road, and ho hopefully next week. Thanks. God's peace be with you.